here. Uh, it's an honor always to come up here. As, as Tucker said, our pastors are gone today. My name is John Wiley. I'm one of the elders, and I am not a pastor. And that will become painfully obvious in just a few minutes when I begin to preach. Thank you. The other thing is, by trade, I, like I said, I'm a pharmacist, and I don't get paid to preach. They don't pay me to be up here. And there's one thing I can guarantee you today, is that you will get your money's worth. <laughs> so let's open in prayer, and we'll get started. Lord God, we thank you for your grace and mercy, for your spirit, for your long-suffering. Father, we need you. This is a difficult, dark world we're in, but we know that you've overcome it. Help us to learn from you. Help the word come forth today and speak to us and be profitable. Let me pray. Amen. So what I want to talk about today is something that can be a real challenge in our Christian walks, a challenge I have often mishandled, and perhaps you have too. And it may be a challenge that we continue to struggle with. What is that challenge? How to respond to a world that disagrees with us. How to respond in a world that is in conflict with our Christian convictions. Who in here has never had to deal with somebody who passively or aggressively disagrees with you? Who wants to make it very clear that their opinion is right and you are absolutely wrong? You know, we can be having a great day all throughout our day, and we have one bad encounter. Somebody who comes across our path that doesn't agree with us and is maybe being aggressively disagreeable. And maybe we don't handle it right. You know, I, as a pharmacist, I could fill 300 prescriptions in a day, and 299 of them go well. The person is gracious and attentive and appreciative, but there's that one person, that one person who just is mad at the world. Nothing I say or do can make them happy. And perhaps I don't handle it well. I don't handle it right. And I go home that night, and which encounter do you think I remember the most? We have that one encounter of the day. Which one do we remember the most? I'm sure this has happened to you. We remember the one bad outcome. And maybe it's not in person. You know, would you say that we have an unprecedented opportunity today to voice displeasure, disagreement, and stir up strife? Of course, we can be confronted in person, but now there's all this technology to make sharing Discord just a keystroke away. Email, texting, social media, etc. It's all at our fingertips. As a matter of fact, right now, you've got this in your pocket or your purse. You could be getting what Pastor Ben calls a nasty gram right here, right now. Maybe you don't open it up till you get out to the car, but, um, you know, it's right at our fingertips. The question is, what do we do with it? What as Christians do we do with conflict, with people that don't disagree with us? We have so much conflict in the world. And I guess I would ask, how have you done? What's your track record? Mine has been very spotty at times. We can so easily be provoked, right? So what are we to do? What advice can we get for getting along? What does the world say about it? Well, there's some, some decent advice. There's one right here, you know. If you don't have something to say, don't say it at all, right? We can agree to disagree, okay? You can disagree, but don't be disagreeable. Now I ask you, how is this all working today? How is this working out? Everybody's getting along, right? No problems, there's nothing on the news, nobody disagreeing with us, nobody disagreeing with our convictions. Everybody's getting along, right? No. This can be okay advice, right? But is there something more? Is there something more? Well, of course, we have God's word, right? 
Does God's word have anything to say about getting along with others, about getting along with perhaps difficult people? Of course it does. Here's here's some right here. You know these, Proverbs 15.1. A calm answer calms a person's anger, but a harsh harsh answer stirs up wrath. So don't provoke. James 1. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So we should listen and be slow to anger. 1 Peter 3, which is a very difficult one to live out. Don't return evil for evil. As a matter of fact, it, it, it says, return a curse with a blessing. We are not re- to return evil for evil. These are great verses, and there's many others in the Word, but there's one set of Scripture, one text, that for me has been a bit more comprehensive, been more instructive and extremely convicting for me, and given me a check in the, my spirit on how to handle how Christians should respond to a disagreeable world. And that is in 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26. So I invite you to open that up and stand up with me as we read God's word. 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26. These are some of Paul's last words in his last epistle, and they're weighty. It says, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may come to know the truth, they may come to their senses, and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. You can be seated. So let's unpack this a little bit and see if uh, we can get some instruction. The first verse right there, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. Now, first of all, notice Paul isn't saying that all disputes and all debate is not bad. If handled in the right way, a dispute or a debate can be profitable and come to a good conclusion, have a good outcome. But here, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about foolish and ignorant disputes that don't end well. And would you think that right now, once again, we have an unprecedented opportunity to fall into foolish and ignorant disputes? We're sort of at a perfect storm of what you might say turbulent discourse. We have social issues, protests, mask mandates, now, now vaccine mandates, school subject mandates, political polarization, financial strain, and for crying out loud, Dairy Queen was closed this week. How much can we take? So when these things come into our world, how do we respond? Typically, it's our flesh that responds first, and we want to send that back. We want to send a response right back. There's a, there's a word for it. It's actually called digital dopamine. When you get in conflict with somebody online, it actually can be an, an addiction. Digital dopamine. And it's one of Satan's greatest tools. And too often in, con- in online conversations or in person, emotions run high, pride gets inflamed, anger is provoked, hostile words are said, and in the end, is anybody's mind really changed? Usually not. Would you say this qualifies as a foolish and ignorant dispute? Yes. So why would Paul warn Timothy and all Christians to avoid these disputes? Why shouldn't we be able to say what we want, when we want, to whom we want? Because as we look, as this text unfolds, we really don't have the luxury to indulge in foolish disputes. But sometimes we really want to. As believers, we have a greater responsibility. A responsibility to do more than win a foolish argument. A responsibility to do more than to tear down others. A responsibility to do more than tear down others to make me look good. 
we're called to something much greater and much more difficult, to be a witness for Christ and to make him look good. But what if from the beginning of a conversation, we lash back? Somebody says, well, no, you know what? You're this, you're this, and you're this, and you're this. And we say, well, yeah, well, you know what? You're this, and you're this, and you're that. At that point, we're done. We've lost. In God's eyes, we have lost. We're not going to have an opportunity to talk to that person about eternal matters. That person's already put you in a box, shut it up, and shipped you off. Have you ever gotten to an end of an argument that you felt like you came out on top? Maybe you shredded the other person, and you felt good about it for a moment, and then later you thought about it, and you said, did did that really accomplish anything? The deal is we might win a point, we might win an argument, but we might miss a bigger opportunity, a much bigger opportunity. And I've made this mistake. I've been humbled by it. And Satan can use this impulsive trap to expose our immaturity. Now, there's a verse coming up about Paul describing his immaturity. And some of you may say, I'm looking more into this than it's there, but I have other scriptures to back up what I'm going to say. It's right here. 1 Corinthians 13. This has always intrigued me. You know this verse. Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now look at the order that he listed these things. He spoke, then he understood, and then he thought. Is that a good pattern to live by? I would say not. Maybe we should ask God to help us to do just the opposite. To think first what he wants from us, to understand what he wants from us, and then speak. I just thought that was a good example. I've always thought that of this verse. We should pray for a game plan for holding our tongues, for thinking, and then understanding before speaking and getting into a foolish and ignorant dispute. Otherwise, we have no chance with people. We should avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Next verse. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. So now we've addressed somewhat the must not quarrel part. Let's talk about the gentle to all. What does that mean in this context? Well, essentially it means don't be offensive from the get-go. An ambassador for Christ is not offensive but is friendly and approachable. We're not to walk around with a chip on our shoulder, easily offended, harboring anger, prejudice, and bias. Not easy. And don't be on the prowl for a fight or an argument. And for some verbally gifted people, this can be sport. It could be like that digital dopamine we talked about. And this is not easy to be gentle, especially if we've been offended. And for some some of us, this may be one of the most challenging things we do in our Christian walk. There is a reason gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit because it doesn't come naturally. I've got a bunch of daughters. My wife is always reminding me to be gentle with them. And I've had to have the Lord remind me. As a matter of fact, for a while I had a G right up on my dash of my car. Be gentle, not only in your house, but outside your house. Paul is saying here that we we must purpose to have a good reputation, be good listeners, and to be approachable, not looking to win foolish arguments. As believers, we are not to look to win foolish arguments. We should look to win souls. Amen? We're not going to get a chance for the greater prize if we're repelling people from the get-go. If our goal is to be fishers of men and to cast a wide net, we must have a good reputation and be good listeners, be approachable, be loving, walking in the Spirit, and know that there's something bigger going on than this conversation. We've heard the, the saying, a Christian needs to earn an audience. We need to earn an audience with people. Well, sometimes the audience is a tough crowd, and it's going to take time, it's going to take prayer but we need to show gentleness and earn an audience with people if we're going to have a chance to have them listen to what we have to say. Able to teach. 
A servant of the Lord must be able to teach. Paul says that in order to a witness to the world, we have to be able to teach. Now, that can sound intimidating. So regarding teaching others, I want to exhort you and encourage you. The Word, yes, indeed, says we have to teach. It's in Hebrews 5. It's in Deuteronomy 6. It's right here in 2 Timothy. We have to be able to teach. Do we know the Word enough to be skilled to teach portions of it to others? In our sphere of influence, in our relationships, and in our contact with the world, are we able to relate God's Word in an effective way? But for the encouragement, remember this. Not all teachers are experts at everything. Even professors specialize. I knew a history professor who was terrible at math, and I knew a math professor that couldn't spell. They had to work at it. It didn't come naturally. So we can work at it too. Here's the thing for sure that God will put you in a position to teach. It may be at the dinner table with your children. It might be at work. It might be with a friend. It might be to a group. It might be one-on-one. This is what my wife is really good at. She's really good at the one-on-one. That's what she is gifted at. And the Lord has blessed her, and she sought out the Lord in counsel, and she's very effective at it. We can be teachers in many different ways. But Paul is saying, get ready. Are you ready, especially with those that get opposed to you? And sometimes the best way to know what to learn is through our failures. It's like you go into a situation, and maybe it doesn't go so well for you. I went away to college as a young man, and I thought I knew a lot. But the Lord put me on a dorm floor where there were three Christians out of 90 kids. And I got shredded. I got broken apart and, and my flaws were easily exposed. How much I didn't know. And it's like, man, I need to know what I believe and why I believe it. I need to get to work. It's very, very humbling. But very, very good for me. Maybe it comes in the form of those people that come two by two to your front door. And you have an encounter with them. And at the end of the encounter, you're like, wow, it, It sure seemed like they knew a lot more than I did. I hope my kids didn't see that. Time to step up our game. Time to learn through failure. We can learn a lot through our failures. Now, some of you may know this word, Spanglish. Part Spanish, part English. And that's what a lot of us know. And that's what I I know. I know a little Spanish and a little English, sometimes one more than the other. But but one time in the pharmacy, in 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 the pharmacy, we typically would have somebody there who could translate Spanish. But not always. So, so one time they, would, they, they called on me, which they would do if we didn't have a translator, because I, I can speak some Spanglish. And this lady had a prescription. They said, there's a little Hispanic lady here that speaks no English. And I said, okay. Well, I went to her. She had an eye drop. And the eye drop instructions were, put two drops in your left eye four times a day. So I told her that. What I thought I told her that in Spanish. Put two drops in your left eye four times a day. And she had a puzzled look on her face, and she kind of smiled and acted like she didn't understand. So I said it louder. Isn't that what we do? In Spanish, put two drops in your left eye four times a day. And she looks at me, and she kind of laughs like she understands, and she walked out. Well, I got back to the pharmacy deck, and my technician, who also speaks Spanglish, says, do you know what you just told her? And I said, what? (laughs) Well, this is what happened. Some of you that speak Spanish know dos gotas. Dos gotas means two drops. And that's what I should have said. But unfortunately, I switched the O and the A around in gotas, and I said this, dos gatos. And some of you are laughing because they say, oh, that means two cats. So yes, indeed, I told this little lady to put two cats in her left eye four times a day. And the word of this spread like wildfire in the pharmacy. And it humbled me a lot. It's like, I need to pick up my game a little bit with my Spanish. And even today, though, I'll go and tell somebody to do something and to take a medicine in Spanish and 
there's always somebody in the pharmacy that says, hey, Rico Suave, how many cats did you tell her to put in her eyes? You know, our failures are a great way to be motivated to learn more how to teach. Amen? This is a good check. Have we spent time enough to be ready to do what God has called us with the scriptures, to counsel and witness? Okay, be patient. Isn't it important when attempting to influence or witness to others to be patient? Parents, how did it go this morning with socks and shoes? A lot more families at first service, and I get a lot of these. (laughs) That always got me, matching up the socks and shoes, trying to get out the door. And you start to drive away, and dad, the dog ran away. It can be very stressful. Then you get to church, and it's like, how are you? Oh, we're so blessed. How are you? Everything's great. How's your family? We're doing great. Oh, yeah. And inside, you're like, but we have to be patient. And one thing that will expand our patience is to remember what the goal is. You know, with our kids, we know that the goal is to raise them to be God-fearing, responsible adults. Well, if we're not patient with them, we're not going to have that. But if we keep the goal in mind, it helps us to expand our patience. So one time, I was in the pharmacy. Now, you might see a common theme here in the pharmacy, right? That's my world, and it's actually a great place to observe human behavior and my own behavior. But one time I had a, I I noticed something happening and it bothered me. I noticed when certain people would come in, people that were mad at the world, people that were not happy with anything, that when they would come in, the pharmacy assistants would just scatter. Oh, I got to go to the bathroom. I've got to run. And usually the new girl is standing there, you know, not knowing what's going to hit her. And she gets a tongue lashing. And I just didn't like the way that was going. So these are the kind of people that are just have a special streak in them that are just mad at the world for some reason. And my friend Kirk and I, years ago, came up with a term for that. They are an EGR. Extra grace required. Do you have EGRs in your life? Well, we had our share coming in the pharmacy. It turns out, and I learned this about 10 minutes into my career, that not everybody likes to go to the pharmacy. You don't feel great and say, I'm going to go to the pharmacy today. The pharmacy can be a challenging place for people that are not feeling well or just is um, not a positive experience for them because they're ill or sick or, or need help. So extra grace required. So I decided to do something about it. I told, I told the girls, okay, here's the, a list of the 10 biggest EGRs that I know. And here's what I'm going to do. Every time they come in, if you can make them smile, I'll give you $20 a smile. I'll give you $20 for every, every smile. And they're like, you're serious? And I said, yep, absolutely. So what do you think happened? They started scheming. And they started planning, how can we make this person smile? Because that's, this, could, this could mean a little bit of money for me. How can I, what can I do differently? And so it was a couple days later, and Mr. Thompson came in, one of these guys. And he wasn't halfway into the store, then one of the assistants ran out to meet him halfway. Hello, Mr. Thompson, how are you today? Isn't it a great day? I want to show you a picture of my puppy. Don't puppies make you smile? What do you like to do, Mr. Thompson? Oh, you like, you like bird watching? What's your favorite kind of bird? Oh, well, I like birds. What kind of bird makes you smile? You know, what happened there? The, the change of attitude because the goal changed. There was a goal in mind. And their patient in, patience increased and their strategy changed. Their countenance changed. And I just used that template to put over onto this verse and onto our Christian walk. The goal here is much greater than $20. The goal here, according to this text, is coming up could be a matter of eternity for somebody. It doesn't get any bigger than that. Let's consider that. Am I good? The truth is, this process of trying to be a witness in a hostile world most likely will take time, prayer, trust, and keeping the goal in mind. 
Okay, next verse. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. And you know, sometimes you come across a scripture, a verse, that just seems outrageously hard. I think this is one of them. But have you noticed that the verses that seem outrageously hard are outrageously important? With this, you know, the Lord, you could be saying to the Lord, you know, you had me up to this point. I actually like correcting other people, but to do it with humility? Really? You know my heart, and you know what I really want to tell this person, but I'm supposed to do it with humility and instruct them with humility? It doesn't come naturally to most of us. And you know the the saying that says God won't give you anything you can't handle? It's not a Bible verse. It's not there. 1 Corinthians says he won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, but that's different. Of course God is going to give us things we can't handle. If we could handle everything, why would we need God? He says his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Of course we need him. And maybe that thing you can't handle is in the form of a person coming into your life opposing you. Maybe you've tried everything you know of in your power, but you need more. Maybe God has put them there for a reason. Maybe God has put them there to help you see people like he does. He doesn't see people like we do. It's a difficult assignment that we can't do on our own, but he can give us the spirit to overcome through his strength. The Lord here is saying, be careful, be thoughtful, and be wise to correct others with humility, even if it's hard, even if it takes time. If we don't show humility, we have little chance of turning people to the Lord. Amen? Okay, so now it's been about us so far in this text. It's been about us to to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife, to be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting others that oppose us. And we can say, you know, Lord, I've I've laid my life down here. I've, I've really tried through your strength. Is this all worth it? Is all of this worth it? Is there a blessing to be had we're doing these things. And I would say in a word, absolutely. The blessings are powerful. They're so powerful, they should motivate us to do whatever it takes to get to this point. The next verse says this, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, which implies that they've repented. Wow, God, do you mean to tell me that this person standing right in front of me can come to repentance in Christ? Are you telling me this guy? Really? Once again, the truth is the Lord doesn't see people like we see them. And he wants us to see that. And maybe there was once a day when somebody said that about you and me. It's a good thing the Lord thought different of you and me, right? But to be honest, I've I've thought this too. I thought this of people. The people had no chance. I've gone to a few class reunions now, and it seems like every time the Lord shows me somebody that I'm surprised about. Somebody who comes to the reunion that I didn't think in my eyes had a chance to live past 30. They abused drugs or alcohol. They were crazy and wild. They were obnoxious. They just lived life on the edge. And I didn't think they'd live past 30 at all. And I go to reunion and there's this person. And I walk up to him and I say, Ron? He says, John, how are you doing? And Ron looks completely different. I start talking to him and I can see it in his eyes, in his heart. And he tells me that I've repented of my sins. I've accepted the Lord and I praise him for that because I'm a new person. And I'm shocked. He's almost unrecognizable. This happens at almost every union. And I go, yes, all right. But inside, I'm really a little ashamed of what I thought of him. The Lord says in 2 Peter 3, that he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. All should come to repentance. 
including that person who's opposing you, and maybe it seems obnoxious. He is instructing us that with our interaction with the world, we can either do it our way and blast people and win foolish arguments, or we can do it God's way and actually have a part in leading somebody to eternity with him. Is there any greater reward? So that they may know the truth. And this dovetails this prior verse, but so that they may know the truth. Would you say the world right now is confused with what truth is? 1 John 5 says the wicked one has a sway over the whole world. Now, does the wicked one tell lies or tell the truth? So it should be no surprise to us that the world is confused. But what a special privilege it is for us to have the opportunity to have the chance to be a messenger of truth to a world that desperately needs it. A chance for somebody that you thought once had no chance to know the truth, but God thinks differently. That God knows that this person can come to forgiveness and freedom. But our conduct with people can determine if they will listen to us. If they'll listen to truth, know the truth, and have the truth set them free. And that they may come to their senses. That they may come to their senses. And I've always thought about this verse, and, and I, I guess I thought of it sort of as the senses of the lost are dull. They're dull to the need of a Savior. They're dull to the truth. They're dull to God. And Satan knows it. But how we respond to them can have a difference in our opportunity to perhaps have the scales of their eyes come off and to know the truth and turn and live and to be fully alive and be sensitive to the Spirit. But we can turn it off like that. But that's a great reward that they will come to their senses. And here's, here's really the big one. And escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Having escaped the snare of the devil. And I like the way Paul puts this because, number one, he says, these people are in bondage. And number two, he says, these people are not the enemy. They're the victim of the enemy. And I've made this mistake many times. When that person is in front of me or texting or whatever, I, view, I can easily view them as the enemy that they're the opposer, they're the oppressor. But God says, no, he's not your enemy. He's a victim and captive of the enemy. He says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We, fle- we wrestle with principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age. It's a spiritual war going on. The Lord says, this guy is not your enemy. This guy needs to be rescued. And guess what? I've sent you to be part of the rescue plan. How are you going to do? He needs your compassion and not your anger. And God, you can say, I don't know, you don't know this guy, God. And God says, really? I've told you this in Matthew 5, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In 1 Peter 3, to return a curse with a blessing. In Luke 6, to love the unlovable. God's ways are so counterintuitive to what we naturally experience and feel. And here is, God is saying that by our conduct, we can have a part of rescuing a soul in bondage. So who said being a Christian was easy? It's not, in our own strength especially. So how can we do this better? What are some things? I've, I've, I've brought some things here that in practice. What in practice are some practical things we can do? They're just my thoughts. I'm sure you have plenty of your own. Um, but how can we maybe do better at this, in this difficult task? Well, first of all, talk, don't text. Now, texting is fine for benign information or to keep in touch, uh, general information, whatever. But when it comes to emotional or provocative information or discussions, talk, don't text. This is a fast lane highway to foolish and ignorant disputes right here. If there is anything that we're not able to talk to the person in live, it shouldn't be in a text. We should purpose to solve our issues 
over the phone or by coffee, and you might say, God, that's hard. That's hard to talk. Well, it should be. It should be hard to talk. It shouldn't be easy to put things in a keyboard and send them off. Words can be very easily misconstrued. I'm going to give you an example. This word right here. Really? 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 How many ways can this one word be misconstrued? And you throw in some emotion or some vitriol, and who knows how that word or our words are going to be received on the other end. We need to text, not text, and talk more. Text less. And sometimes when we talk in person, it's hard enough to understand what the other person's saying. I'll give you an example. One time my wife and I were driving down the road. She's in the passenger seat, and she looks over to me and says these words. You have a little belly. I'm driving, okay. Uh, well, thank you. I've been working out a little. I've been watching my diet. You know, it's, it's nice of you to notice. And about 10 seconds goes by, and she says, no, 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 you, you don't understand. You have a little belly. What? Wait, what? Oh, 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 well, that's different. I have, a, I have a little belly. See, I was putting the emphasis on little. She was putting the emphasis on belly. And so just speaking in person can be hard enough, right? It's hard enough in person. But words alone through messaging especially can be very dangerous and lead to foolish and ignorant disputes. The send button can be a blessing and a curse. Use it with caution. Resolve to deal touchy issues through conversations. Amen? This is something I recall relationship equity. And relationship equity is this. Healthy debate and disputes and, and conflict and uh, conversations can go back and forth with some people, and you can, you can maintain relationship. But there are certain people that you're going to get one chance with, that maybe when you talk to them, they're going to listen to one time that you have a contrary opinion. And there are people in our world today that if we exchange our relationship equity we have with people with a political statement or a political ideology, they're going to be done with us. And they're going to put that in a box, and we're going to be labeled something, and we're not going to have a word with them with anything about eternal issues. So I would say just use your relationship equity with people wisely. There's a time and a place. People can be looking for a fight, but we need to be patient to hold our tongue and to wait, and to know that with certain people, we may get one chance. This is a great book, and I can I'd highly recommend it. It's called Tactics. This is a ministry from Greg Kokel. It's uh, Stand to Reason is their website. They've got really good videos. This is a, uh, a game plan to deal with people who are maybe really on the track of being radioactive. I mean, they're just on fire, and they want to tear you down, and they accuse you of things. And this is a game plan to ask questions, to have a strategy to not offend them, to stay in the conversation, but get it back to ground level, where you can actually have a, a normal conversation with them. And this, so it's, it's just a great book. They were here a few months ago uh, for a weekend seminar, and it was fantastic. I can't recommend this enough, especially if you have people in your life you just don't know what to do with. And plant the word in your heart. So we've talked about some verses already. We've talked about 2 Timothy. Hebrews 4 says this, that the word discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart. The word discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart. If we have the word implanted with us, within us, and we come across a situation and we start to cross that word, the spirit will convict us. Ah, uh -uh, don't go that far. The word says to love the unlovable. How you doing? 
But if we don't know the word, we're just going to go on. And one of the greatest verses I know, in addition to this, that talks about this topic, one of the most underrated verses is this one right here, Ephesians 4.29, that says, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful in building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And that really speaks for itself. And I tell you what, having this in your heart, maybe to start the day, to be early in the day and you get this verse in your heart, it's going to help. It's going to help a lot. And the Spirit is going to guide you and convict you when perhaps we're tempted to not say things that are wholesome. Sometimes this is, this is all we can do, to walk away and wait for another day. There may be times where maybe that other person is under the influence of something. Maybe they're just so distracted and fired up that they're not going to be ready to listen There may be a time where maybe you don't feel like you're being led by the Spirit to intervene or to uh, encounter. It's okay to walk away. Maybe regroup. Maybe pray. Maybe ask God for direction. But sometimes the worst thing we can do is just charge ahead when it's not time. God will appoint the time. Psalm 139. One thing that's very, very helpful is to look within ourselves and to ask God, what part do I have in this? What part have I contributed to make this conflict worse. And Psalm 139 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. What have I done to contribute to this? Lord, please show me. And while I'm saying that, I want to say this too, that maybe that other person that God has brought into your life is not so much about them, but it's about you. There are times we need a kick in the pants. You know, David had a mocker. I think this is one of David's finest moments, really. He was at a low point of his life, 2 Samuel 16, and they're walking along the road, and he had a mocker that said, you rogue, you bloodthirsty man, your sin has come upon you, you bloodthirsty man. And David's associate says, who is this dead dog to call out the king? Off with his head. And David had every authority to do that. But David realized something. He said, no, don't hurt that guy, because the Lord sent him. The Lord sent him to humble me. Wow. That shows a lot of restraint, a lot of perspective. I hope that when that happens to me, that I have a sliver of the maturity that David had in that situation to say, that obnoxious person is there for my good, for my humbling. I think it's one of David's better moments. Pray and fast, right? Ask yourself this question. Do my failures with people coincide with a lack of devotion time with the Lord? I know mine do. It seems like when I'm slacking off with the Lord, I am really vulnerable to not do His ways. Maybe begin the day before encountering people to spend time with the Lord, to be in His Word, to be in prayer. Ask God to to help you walk in His Spirit and not your flesh. Maybe there's somebody that, like Uncle Larry that comes to Thanksgiving, and every year you know Uncle Larry is a handful. What do we do with Uncle Larry? Well, maybe the question is, what do I do about me? Maybe I need to be in prayer about Uncle Larry. How do I need, how, do, how can I respond better? Maybe it's time to go a day without eating and see what the Lord reveals to me, specifically how to bless Uncle Larry and to maybe someday have a word in his life. Help me to be broken and humbled and directed by your word and spirit to respond better. Help me to resolve not to indulge in foolish arguments and give me the wisdom to navigate around them for a greater prize. That can really be difficult but the Lord will help us. Lord, help me build love and compassion for this person. Help me to remember there's more at stake here than what I see. Help me to pray for them and find an opportunity to serve and bless them. 
Help me to exude the fruit of the Spirit and not my flesh. This can be a real test for us. And we need a work of the Spirit. I was having a devotion time with my wife a few months ago. And the, devotion time, the devotional we were reading described a woman, an older woman. And it described her as a prayer warrior, just an a, a outstanding servant of the Lord. And she was described that when she gets up in the morning, Satan must say, uh-oh, she's awake again. What a great way to be described. So how does Satan respond when you get up and when I get up? Uh-oh, he's up again? Or great, but the games begin. I'm going to throw somebody in to throw his day off. But the games begin. You know, as I've gotten older and I read texts like this and I realize what God is asking of me and what a challenge it is, I realize that those EGRs we talked about, the extra grace required, I've realized this, that maybe it's not them that need the extra grace. It's me. Let's pray. Father God, you said we would have trouble in this world. You actually promised it. And God, we can fail in so many ways. And we can cut off conversations and respond poorly. But we know that your word directs us another way. We need your help, Father. Help us as we go out today, get in the car and drive home. Later today, tomorrow, the weeks and months ahead, that we would resolve to not indulge in foolish and ignorant disputes. But we would respond in a manner that's pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Amen.